Okay, this morning's scripture reading, and by the way, thank you very much for that children's message. It dovetails nicely with uh, the grown-up message today. Very nice. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the first chapter of Peter's first epistle, verses 10, 11, and 12. Uh, if, if you would like, you may turn in your Bible. I notice you have pew Bibles. I'm reading today from the Christian Standard Bible. It's a translation that just came out late this past spring. It should be very similar to the NIV that you have there in your pews. I'm beginning at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The Lord always blesses the reading of his word when it's read in faith. I'll write a question this morning. What would you say to somebody who is going through an incredibly difficult time in his or in her life? Well, you say, not knowing what to say, I'd bring a box of chocolates. And chocolate does help on many an occasion. But I'm not talking about the kind of a bad day where someone came home with uh, the wrong size of shoes from the shopping trip to Sioux Falls. I'm not talking about the flat tire here along the U.S. highway. I'm talking about a really difficult time that would be more of a crisis of faith kind of experience. It might be finding out that someone has cancer. Someone's going to lose the farm. A spouse is abandoning. Those are difficult times. So what do you say to someone in those times? Well, we listen and if the occasion arises, I have something far better for you to share than chocolate. It has to do with our salvation. The simple reminder that regardless of our circumstances, we belong to God forever because of what Jesus did for us. When the Apostle Peter wrote this first epistle, he was writing to mostly Gentile, and to some Jewish believers in Christ who were living in north-central, what is today modern-day Turkey, in the land of Asia Minor. He was writing to those who were living in the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He was writing to them because they were about to experience real suffering and hardship and persecution. The imperial government was allowing the local governor and others to carry out persecutions against believers in Jesus. And Peter, who was living in Rome at the time, was sending, as it were, an advance warning of the suffering that was about to take place. And so he's preparing those first century believers to experience real hardship, persecution, 
and that conflagration of difficulty that sometimes overtakes a believer in Jesus Christ. And so as he writes to these believers, he comes down to the end of verse 9, and he mentions that one day those believers, and we too, living here in northwest Iowa, we will experience the the ultimate goal, the outcome of our faith, that is the salvation of our souls. He mentions that in verse 9. He says, because you are about to receive the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And when, when Peter writes about the salvation of their souls, he's not writing about souls so much in a modern Western philosophical sense. That is the immaterial part of a human being. Peter instead is writing more in a Semitic way. He's writing about the soul as it represents the totality of the person, including the person's body. You say, how do you know that? I know that because later on in 1 Peter, Peter says, don't you remember how that Noah and those who were with him ate souls, ate souls, they were saved in the boat from the deluge, from the flood. So their bodies were also saved, even though he refers to their bodies with the word soul. That's important because those who were persecuted in the first century, they would sometimes lose their lives and their bodies would be put to death. But Peter assures those believers that no matter how difficult the circumstances of life may be, be for a believer, one day, even even if, even if the circumstance includes death, one day there will be a resurrection from the dead. And that will be the ultimate outcome of our faith, that is the salvation of the totality of our being. Well, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If Christ is your Savior, then one day you will be raised from the dead. Okay, So he's talking about the salvation of the totality of the person, not just redemption from hell, not just redemption from the, the wrath that a sinner deserves under the mighty hand of a holy God, but also even one day the resurrection of the body from the dead. That's good news, all done and made possible because of Jesus Christ. All right, so now in the morning text, Peter continues, concerning this salvation, and that's the title of the sermon, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. Okay, so what Peter is doing is he is tying what the prophets of the Old Testament, what they knew about our salvation long ago, and he's tying their limited knowledge to the experience of the first century believers. That is the experience that they were very soon to undergo, that of persecution. All right, so this salvation is described in terms of grace that was to come to them. The Old Testament people of God did not specifically know everything about Jesus of Nazareth, certainly not as much as we know this side of the cross. They knew what the prophets had predicted, but, but they didn't know all the details or how it would all fit together. They did believe in the promises of God and their faith was credited to them for righteousness. They knew that the promises of the Old Testament pointed to the future arrival of the Messiah Savior and we know him by name as Jesus of Nazareth. And the prophets themselves were at times intrigued by God's plan of salvation. That's why it says that they sought out, verse 11, they were inquiring. Verse 10, they were searching out and carefully investigating. In fact, Peter, who is a great communicator, when he's writing this in the original language of the Greek, he adds prepositions to those words to make them very intensive. 
They were searching out and they were carefully, deeply, intently investigating. They were trying to discover these words of intensity taken even together and compound. They're, they're expressing the earnestness of the curiosity and the longing of the Old Testament prophets. They were predicting the arrival of the Messiah and they wanted to know more about it. Okay? So the good news of salvation that the prophets sought and looked forward to had not been revealed to them in full detail. It reminds me of Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all, these Old Testament saints, they died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, right? From the pages of the Old Testament scriptures, they saw them from a distance. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. And Peter is trying to make a connection. He's connecting the dots between the Old Testament believers who were living as exiles and these New Testament believers who were also living as exiles. In fact, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 and he refers to them in verse 1 as those who were living as exiles because their citizenship was from heaven. These Old Testament prophets, they hadn't figured it all out. They were curious as to the time that the Messiah would arrive. They were curious as to the exact nature of the person of the Messiah and under what circumstances he would arrive. So they were searching even their own scriptures. Did you know that? For example, in the prophecies of Daniel, we are told that Daniel was reading Jeremiah. Did you know that? Daniel was reading Jeremiah. And he was curious about some of the prophecies. Later on in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, the final chapter of Daniel 12, Daniel asks questions and he's told, you know enough, now you seal up the book for the, for the time of its fulfillment. Ah! <laughs> you mean I give the prophecy as the prophet and I understand what the words themselves mean but it's hard for me to put it all together? I, I don't get it. The prophets did not fully understand it. What was also especially difficult for the Old Testament prophets was trying to go from these predictions of the suffering of the Messiah right away, even sometimes in the same chapter or even in the same verse, to the glories of the Messiah. How could he be both a suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and a ruling king, Isaiah chapter 11? That's a difficult, difficult concept to bring together. It's a stunner. How would you know that? Still, it was the spirit of the Messiah who revealed the sufferings of the Messiah and his subsequent glorification. And so, by the way, I like that. There's so much that could be said about this passage, and uh, time really does not allow us to go into too many details here, but it does say in verse 11 that these Old Testament prophets inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ, and if I were translating that, I might translate it also correctly as the Spirit of the Messiah, because I'm putting it in the Old Testament context here. The Spirit of the Messiah within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Okay? So the Spirit of Christ himself was speaking through the mouths of the prophets preparing the people for his own arrival. Wow! What does that argue for? That argues for the pre-existence of Jesus. Jesus existed before Bethlehem and the manger. Did you know that? He existed before that. He has existed from eternity past. 
of the Father's love begotten. <laughs> These are some of the major teachings of the Christian faith down through the centuries. Our Savior prepared His people for His own arrival by speaking by His Spirit through His prophets. Wow! That's amazing. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. I have become its servant, Paul writes, according to God's commission. That is, he's become the servant of the gospel. That was given to me. The gospel was given to me, Paul says, for you, believers in Colossae, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I have the privilege of leading tours to the Bible lands, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and not as frequently Greece, Macedonia, the Aegean, and Turkey. So I've been to Colossae. You get off the bus and you walk around and everyone comes back on the bus smelling like sheep <laughs> because currently it's an undug hill, unexcavated, and sheep roam it. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul showed up at Colossae with the good news of Jesus, having traveled there from Israel. Wow! Are you kind of seeing how that salvation history unfolds? Now, in Peter's introduction to his epistle in the text this morning, he's introducing for us the concept of suffering, and more importantly, he's introducing for us the concept that suffering comes before glory. And he will say that over and over and over again in 1 Peter. Suffering comes before glory. And that must have been a great encouragement to the first century believers who were about to undergo persecution. This was the very same order, suffering before glory, that the Old Testament prophets had predicted for the path that the Messiah himself would walk. And it was, in fact, the experience of the Messiah, our Savior Jesus, as he walked on the earth. He suffered. You can see it in the stained glass. And then he entered into his glory. So the Spirit of the Messiah, who is the Holy Spirit, of course, was speaking through the prophets and was teaching them that the Messiah would be one who would both suffer and would later be glorified. Now, Peter, in the New Testament era, is telling those believers that they too would be walking in the steps of the Savior and they would experience suffering before glory. Oh, wow. They would experience suffering before glory. Ah, that's better than a box of chocolates. Do you see how this works? No matter what the circumstances in life may be, no matter what you may be suffering, even if your body is being broken down, there is the promise of future resurrection. There is suffering now before glory. That's what Jesus experienced, and that's what we experience now in this life. All right? Now, to be truthful here, in the fine print... And you didn't pay tuition for this. This is advanced theology. Something similar actually could be said from our vantage point today, even this side of the cross, because we do not know many of the details concerning the future, in the Greek it's the parousia, the future arrival of Christ at his second coming. We don't know all the details. There are many prophecies about the future, but it's hard for us 
to put them all together, just like it was difficult for the Old Testament prophets to put them all together. It doesn't mean we shouldn't search them out and investigate them carefully. We should, but we don't have it all figured out, okay? Furthermore, Peter explains that the prophets were not serving themselves with their prophetic ministries. Instead, they were serving Christians on the other side of the cross, Peter highlights this reality in order to encourage his first century readers with their privileged status. They were the ones who were served by the great Old Testament prophets, and that goes for us as well. It says in verse 11, they inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Messiah within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow Then verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is to the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, that is the believers on this side of the cross. They were actually, with their prophecies, serving New Testament believers. Uh, That's another stunner. Okay, so the Old Testament is filled with prophecies concerning the Messiah. We know this, and Peter doesn't mention any specific prophecy. He could have. I've already mentioned some. Isaiah 53, for example. Instead, like the way it is accounted in Luke chapter 24, verses 26 through 27, he goes about it in a more general fashion. It says there in Luke 24, the words of Jesus now on, with two disciples on the road to... Emmaus, Jesus said, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The challenge is that, by and large, you and I have it far too good. We have been inoculated against the real Christian experience. We, like Peter, in the infantile stages of his faith, we would say, let's have glory and forget about the suffering. Did you know that's what Peter told Jesus? Do you remember that? When Peter said, Oh, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're spot on, Peter. Remember that? Then what did Peter do? It says in the Greek, in a very strong word, he took Jesus in his arm. It's almost like he put his arm around Jesus' shoulders. He steered him off to the side so he could give him some pastoral counseling. I mean, Peter to Jesus. Jesus, you've got to stop talking about going up to Jerusalem to suffer, to be betrayed, to suffer, and to die. That's really discouraging the other disciples. Don't do that. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did he say? I'll give you all the glories of this kingdom if you'll just bow down here. Remember that? Glory before suffering. Jesus knows better. It's always suffering before suffering. So no matter how hard the circumstances may be, the suffering will ultimately, always, inevitably result in glory for the believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? It's excellent news. 
So suffering is a theme in 1 Peter, and it was the experience of the Messiah, and it's the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. And now we see in the middle of verse 12, moving from the prophets to the apostles, these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the same Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So now those first century believers, they were receiving from spirit-energized evangelists, those apostles, those preachers, the same message that the prophets had foretold so many years before. Those prophets were serving the believers of the New Testament age. The apostles were spreading the good news and increasing the numbers of those believers of the New Testament age. This is a salvation predicted through the prophets by the Spirit of Messiah who suffered before his glory. And now it's the same message that is proclaimed by the apostles who were empowered by this same Spirit who was sent from heaven. And it's the Spirit energizing those evangelists in Peter's day to preach the good news. And may this same Spirit energize the pastors and the preachers, the elders and the leaders and the lay people here in Lyon County to spread the good news of the gospel, which also includes this corollary teaching of suffering before glory. All right? That ought to make you feel super special. I mean, a chocolate, that's, that's nice. That'll make you feel special. But to know that all of salvation history has been moving forward for you. For you. For you. God, in his sovereign love, has reached down through the centuries to provide salvation for you and for me through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and who rose again from the dead so that if we simply believe in him, receiving him as our Savior, we are not only forgiven of our sins and gifted with eternal life and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we are afforded the promise of glory in the future. All right, the last phrase. We may actually end on time. You may have me back someday, I don't know. All right, verse 12. And this is the last phrase. So it's about the prophets, it's about the apostles, and now it's about the angels, if you're taking notes for the three points of the sermon. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Well, if you've been asleep up to this moment, now it's time to wake up because what I've been preaching is news so magnificent that even the angels themselves, they want to check it out. What believers have received is so marvelous that even the angels who are close to God there in heaven, who are Privy to his counsels, they desire to get a better look into the sufferings and glorifications of the Messiah. This order of things which is at the very heart of God's redemptive plan for humanity. And salvation in Christ is so great and the blessing so tremendous that the angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The gospel excites their interest so much that they want to study it intently. They desire strongly, Peter writes in the Greek, eagerly 
It's a longing not yet fulfilled. It's a present tense, meaning they are currently, even yet, studying our salvation. They want to look into it. In the Greek, it's very powerful. They want to bend down and look into it in order just to capture a glimpse of it. And we live it all the time. I've wondered why are the angels, why are they not able to fully understand it? It might be because they have no redemption. When a third of the angels fell with Satan, they, they were permanently cast out of the, the sphere of God's blessing. There is no redemption for them. How do I know that? Because of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation, whereby he added to his full deity perfect humanity. So the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, became the God-man so that he could then live and then die and provide salvation, as the author of Hebrews says, so that he could provide salvation, having suffered death and then being crowned with glory and honor, so that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. It was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source or the pioneer or the leader of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Okay? But it says later in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, that it is clear, the author says, that he did not reach out to help angels, but he reached out to help Abraham's offspring. And he did it by becoming like one of us in every way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18, Hebrews 2, For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus could add to his deity only one, whether, whether, and we don't know, could he have added angelness? Maybe. But he chose in love to add humanness. And that's why he's a savior for human beings who believe in him. But the angels have no substitute. That's why they have to study it. They don't experience it. They don't fully know it. I think it also mystifies them because they're like chomping at the bit to protect Jesus, the Son of God. They don't necessarily, I'm assuming this, they wouldn't necessarily have chosen for the Savior to have endured the sufferings. When Jesus in his hour of trial said, don't you know I could call thousands of angels? God the Father probably was holding them back because this concept of suffering before glory, it's a mystery. The prophets searched it. The apostles preached it. The angels are studying it. And you have it in your life and in your future. All right. I have a final illustration. When I close my Bible, that means I'm almost done. And I don't mind if you, if you uh, would just listen a, another minute or two. Have you ever seen the PBS television show Antique Roadshow? Have you? I've never seen an entire episode, but I, I have seen uh, an, uh, minutes of it. And there's something that is really captivating about it. It's super simple. I mean, the premise is these antique experts, they travel around the country, and lines of people show up with their, their attic junk and garage stuff that they can't get rid of, and they bring it up 
to the tables and these antique experts, they are, they're looking at the provenance and the, the condition and all of this and then they assign a value to it. And every so often, you know, there's some, some man or woman and they've, they've brought this box of, of stuff that they've protected all their lives, you know, from their spouse who really wanted to throw it away. And then they hear the good news, well, this is worth like $10,000. <gasps> I looked it up yesterday. What were some of the, the real stunners? That's the word I'm using this morning. On July 23rd, 2011, a collection of Chinese cups worth one to 1.5 million showed up at one of those antique road shows. A trove of 1870s Boston red stockings memorabilia showed up worth a million dollars, later verified to be worth an auction at 494,000. No, I'm sorry, one million in insurance purposes. The Chinese pieces ended up selling, depending on which collection, 1.7 million to 500,000. A Norman Rockwell oil painting was appraised at 500,000 in 2010 in Eugene, Oregon. A collection of Charles Schultz Peanuts comic art was appraised at 450,000 in Phoenix, Arizona, and so forth. So, I mean, you go to a show like that, you have your, your cardboard box, and you don't really know what the treasure is in the box, and then you find out, you're gonna walk back out to the car, to the parking lot like this. I've got a treasure. You're going to go back to your spouse and you say, na, 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 na. I was right. I'm so glad I'd never let you throw that away. Okay? But what I'm doing today in the, in the few 20, 25 minutes I've had with you to preach God's word to you today is I'm preparing you for your time of suffering or I'm preparing you to minister to those around you who are going through their times of suffering. I am here to tell you today that you have a treasure that was predicted by the prophets, that was announced by the apostles, that is searched out diligently by the angels, that is worth infinitely more than five old Chinese cups or some Boston Red Stockings memorabilia or a box of chocolates. If you have Christ, you have everything. Our Father in heaven, we would commit ourselves afresh, anew to your Son. We confess, Lord, that plenty of times our faith is weak. We waver, we stumble, we fall short. We thank you that where we are faithless, he is faithful still. Increase our faith, Father. Build us up in our most holy faith, we pray. For those today who are especially hurting in body or in mind or in both, whether here in the sanctuary or out in a long-term care facility or home or alone somewhere, Father, I pray that by your spirit and by your word you would build an expectancy of hope for the glory that inevitably will follow. We pray this so that you would be magnified because your son is head of the church and we speak to you in his authority. Amen. Amen.